It's the 28th of July, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. What do you do when a pain in the neck leads to death? I'm thinking of a few people right now, but let's not get into that. What about misdiagnosis leading to death? And you know, COVID deaths are weighed down, but you know what? COVID is not dead. All that on this week's podcast. We've actually looked at COVID numbers recently. I know we haven't talked about it in a long time. And the numbers are historically low. And it's a far less dangerous bug than it's ever been. But the news is, in the last week, hospitalizations for COVID are up 10%. ER visits are up 7%. Test positivity rates have risen from 5.8 to 6.3. That's a 0.5% increase. I don't know if this means that COVID is on the way back. The only positive news that I saw on this report that appeared in the Wall Street Journal was that um, looking at um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 in sewage in major cities, that number is still down. In fact, it's already peaked and it's gone down. So it might be that we're not going to hit a peak. I bring it up because we're all acting as if it never happened. We're all acting as if maybe we didn't learn any new lessons from COVID, and I think we should have. But let's move on. You know, I hope you followed our Women in Rheumatology campaign in the month of April. We had a lot of great information. This last week, uh, a report looked at women uh, in academia showing that um, there's a any of us that go into academia, there's a sort of normal attrition rate um, over five years, around 30% or so. CMS billing data was analyzed over a long period of time and showed that women physicians were 25% more likely than their male counterparts to leave academia. Um, and this actually happens throughout their careers. Uh, the overall numbers, the five-year attrition rate, Uh, was 38% for females and 32% for males. And the question is, why? Is it the added demands on women for their time and that maybe, or maybe that academia is not conducive to a career? Um, Again, there's a lot to be addressed here and hopefully we'll continue to address it. Another scary number came out this past week and that is, Nearly 800,000 Americans die annually, or actually misdiagnosed annually. Of that 800,000, about 370,000 die, and over 400,000 are permanently disabled from misdiagnoses. Turns out that there are 15 diagnoses that count for about 15 of these serious misdiagnoses and harms. The top five are stroke, sepsis, pneumonia, venous thromboembolic events, and lung cancer. These account for about 40% of all misdiagnoses. We're all capable of misdiagnosis, you know, and these are often errors of omission, um, wrong diagnostic test choice, and whatnot. I guess the question is, what do you learn from misdiagnosis? It's a topic that I'm interested in and hope to write about in the near future as I'm collecting a lot of data like this that is kind of scary. You know what else is scary? 
bad things in rheumatoid arthritis, and maybe one of the worst things I think I've ever seen, is rheumatoid vasculitis. Thankfully, don't see very much of it. I saw a fair amount of it during my fellowship, which was 35 years ago. Um, and I can't say that I've seen a good case of rheumatoid vasculitis in the ten, last 10 years. It's a nice review with a good link uh, on the website. Uh, the review is written by uh, Lawrence Ornat and uh, colleagues. Um, just going over what the real numbers are that uh, in 88 to 2000, the uh, rate dropped from 9.1 to 10 years later to 3.9 per million. That's like four cases per million. That's why we don't see it anymore. Um, they went over a few things, including risk factors for the disease, which included smoking, uh, longevity of disease, seropositivity, males, um, HLA-DR beta-101, HLA-C3. Most common manifestations of rheumatoid vasculitis were cutaneous in over 65% of patients. CNS in a third to two-thirds of patients. And cardiac in 33%. So these cardiac events that you're seeing in your RA patients, should you consider vasculitis? The, the um, I guess the profile of someone with rheumatoid vasculitis is older, long-standing disease, high acute phase reactants, and they're usually seropositive for ACPA, rheumatoid factor, and ANA. Rheumatoid vasculitis, it still is scary. The, the sad news is there is no, uh, no specific therapy for it, but aggressive therapy has been, and there are many of them that have been advocated. Um, I, ad I, I talked earlier about chronic neck pain. I don't know if you've seen this data, but uh, neck pain is a big problem. And, um, you know, the question is, is it always associated with osteoarthritis or not? NHANE study of almost 5,700 patients showed that in that cohort, 8% had OA, uh, almost uh, 6% had neck pain. If you had uh, neck pain, you have a two-fold higher risk of OA. If you have OA and you have chronic neck pain, um, you have a three-fold higher risk of mortality. I've been trying to wrap my head around that. Why is that? Um, and it's not just related to age alone. So it may, have, it may have to do with severity of disease. It may have to do with um, changes in lifestyle imposed by severe OA, meaning more sedentary, worse diets, seeing less doctors. Um, again, it's sort of a scary number. Um, I'm really bothered by the numbers for uh, inflammatory erosive hand OA, which is a much larger population than we we realize. And this, this neck pain business, I think, is something also we need to worry about. An interesting study comes from the University of Michigan Lupus Clinic, 462 patients. They did structured interviews um, in these lupus patients over time and found that 22% of these lupus patients admitted to cost-related non-adherence over a 12-month period. Now, we know non-adherence in lupus can be as high as 60%, and this is the number that the patients actually admitted to. But nonetheless, in this cohort, 
having cost-related non-adherence was associated with significantly higher levels of lupus activity and lupus damage. I think we've made this point in the past that non-adherence in lupus has these bad outcomes. Um, and I think it's something that you need to always work at. How do you work at non-adherence? A lot of it has to do with your communication with the patient and, and setting goals and providing instruction. An interesting study I post published this week talked about the predictive value of JO1 positivity in patients with the antisynthetase um, syndrome. This is a fairly small study, 48 patients followed serially, and they showed that JO1 uh, antibody levels significantly correlated with disease activity, and cor correlation coefficient of 0 0.4 and R value 0.4, um, and um, CK levels and change in CK levels of 0.34. These, these are not strong correlations, but they are statistically significant, I think clinically meaningful. They also showed that um, JO1 positivity associated with higher disease activity um, in a significant manner. Like, I looked this up in the PubMed search, found a few articles that kind of support it, but the bottom line is that um, the correlation between JO1 positivity levels over time and activity is a modest correlation at best. I can't say that I do them serially. Based on this data, I still wouldn't do them serially. But I think it's a, nonetheless um, an interesting study that bears a larger cohort uh, study uh, for the future. Uh, a study of ankylosing spondylitis looking at an IL-23 inhibitor, tildrakizumab, as you know, there isn't a lot of data that supports the use of IL-23 in inhibition in spondyloarthritis, and this data backs it up. A double-blind randomized control trial, 101 patients were active, BASDI scores greater than four going in, given either placebo or the IL-23 inhibitor, and you know what? After 24 weeks, no difference in outcomes. The ASAS-20, 74% on tildrakizumab um, and 80% on placebo. How do you get an 80% placebo response in 101 uh, AS patients looking using an ASAS-20? Again, I find this perplexing, especially the high placebo response rate. I, don't, I think that almost ruins the value of the study. But this is yet another study that shows IL-23 inhibition um, doesn't yet have a role in spondyloarthritis, and I know others are working on that. Um, the big thing this year is biosimilars, and we have um, eight and maybe more biosimilars of adalimumab in play right now, and where they belong and how we're gonna use it remains to be seen. The EMA has adopted a positive opinion about its first biosimilar for tocilizumab. This is made by uh, Frenzius Kavi, its uh, trade name is Tyene. Uh, it would get the same indications as uh, tocilizumab, meaning for RA, systemic JIA, polyarticular JIA, GCA, COVID-19, and the CAR T-cell uh, cytokine release syndrome. You know, the patent's going to be up on tocilizumab, I believe, at the end of this year in the U.S. Uh, I believe there's been an application for a tocilizumab IL-6, I'm sorry, an IL-6 biosimilar um, in the U.S., but again, that uh, the there is no current state of action on that. We need to uh, wait and see. It's likely it would get approved in the EMA based on what I'm reporting here. Uh, a meta-analysis done by a number of big known people looked at uh, IL-1 inhibitors 
and that includes canakinumab, rolonisep, and anakinra. Um, Meta-analysis of uh, 14 studies, 10 RCTs, over 4,000 gal patients showing that um, canakinumab and rolonisep did better than active comparator in control of pain of gout, and that canakinumab and rolonisep reduced gout flares. I want to remind you that um, canakinumab and rolonisep previously went in front of the FDA for a gout indication and were not approved. I believe canakinumab is pursuing that again. Um, I don't know if you've used an IL-1 inhibitor in patients with problematic uh, gout, uh, and I, I have. It works really well. Uh, refractory acute cases in my hands with anakinra has worked really well. I think the use of a of of an IL-1 inhibitor to prevent flares during urate lowering therapy works really well, albeit incredibly expensive. So where exactly this is going to fit in our arsenal remains to be seen. And a meta-analysis does not supersede the results of the double-blind placebo-controlled trials, which on their merit didn't really lead to FDA approval in the past. And I'm talking over 10 years ago. Speaking of gout, um, the use of these new SGLT2 inhibitors, sodium glucose trans tra uh, co-transporter 2 inhibitors like Ozempic and whatnot being used for um, diabetes, but also showing great promise in weight loss. You know, these are being used in heart failure. They're probably going to have find a place in lupus nephritis. Uh, this being used in patients with gout and diabetes shows that these patients have lower sodium uh, serum urate levels, and they also have fewer gouty flares. In addition, they have less cardiovascular events, um, mainly MIs and um, strokes. And this is based on comparisons of this large cohort of patients who either got a SGLT2 inhibitor or a uh, dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitor uh, for their gout, and obviously SGLT2 wins at both gout control and cardiovascular events. So again, you might find a real use for that in patients who you're worried about, both cardiac issues and gout control. Uh, the uh, journal Arthritis and Rheumatology recently published new guidelines uh, for uh, the classification criteria of calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease. That's a, it's a great document. It's shedding light on a condition we don't know a lot about. I mean, the incidence of, of calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease, no one really knows. If you use radiographic evidence of chondrocalcinosis, it's about 8 to 10% of the older adult population. But that's just a surrogate and not necessarily the same as acute pseudogout or chronic CPPD uh, arthritis or polyarthritis. So uh, after a, you know, a, a multinational task force um, developing definitions and attacking the data, they came up with really two definitions of uh, the classification for calcium pyrophosphate deposition. And the first is the definition having at least one or more uh, episode of peripheral joint pain, swelling, or tenderness. Second, you must not have an exclusionary alternative diagnosis like psoriatic arthritis, gout, etc. And lastly, you must meet either the criteria of, they call it sufficient criteria of the crown den syndrome or calcium pyrophosphate crystals identified in the synovial fluid. 
go back to what, what did you just say uh, crowned den syndrome i must say never heard of it had to look it up the crown den syndrome is calcification of the cruciform and alar ligaments around the odontoid process giving it a crowned look of calcification on top of the odontoid so this is basically going to be based on a c1 c2 x-ray um, such patients, um, it's not just a radiographic finding, they awful ha often have neck pain, occipital neck pain, neck stiffness, sometimes with fever and often with a high acute phase reactant. That's sort of an automatic uh, diagnosis. It is a rare manifestation of a common disorder, CPPD. Or you could make the diagnosis based on what they call weighted criteria, clinical features, metabolic findings, lab and investigations, having 56 points or more, you get diagnosed as having CPPD with a sensitivity of 99%, specificity of 92.5%. How do you get 56 points? I don't have that many fingers. And if you look at the report and you can click on the link in on the website and, and find the, the point system, it's long and involved to say the least uh, I'm gonna read some for you um, you get six points for being over age 60 you get 16 points for having more than one uh, episode of pseudo gout you lose points for first MTP involvement you minus six you gain points for eight or nine points for wrist or knee involvement um, if you have a metabolic uh, bone disease uh, or other metabolic disease related you get points for that you lose points for not having CPPD crystals on synovial fluid analysis. Um, and then you get a lot of points for x-rays. Um, conventional radiography, uh, ultrasound, CT, deck scanning, 16 points. And then peripheral joints, having four or more involved by any criterion, gets you 16 points. My point is this, 56 points is a lot to accrue. The, the, sca the scoring system is I think somewhat unworkable. So uh, Abhishek and colleagues, congratulations for great work. The bad news is um, this was uh, almost too hard when it came to um, <laughs> making the diagnosis. Let's end with a case um, in, uh, from uh, Ask Kush Now. Um, this comes from uh, Dr. Jerome Barr. Hello, Dr. Kush. This is Dr. Jerome Barr from the Garden State. Thank you for your amazing podcast. My question is regarding rheumatoid nodules. I have not been overly successful treating the nodules, and I haven't really seen anything convincing in the literature. Have you had any success with intranodule steroid injections, any disease-modifying drugs, or any biologics? Thank you. All right. Thank you, Dr. Barr. I hope you could have heard that. Hello, Dr. Kush. Oh, there you go. Um, I hope you heard that. Um, Jerome's asking about what do I do with rheumatoid nodules. And the good news is there is no good news. Um, I actually did a Twitter poll on this just today and have over 300 responses with nine hours of voting. When I asked the audience on Twitter, presumably rheumatologists, what's your effective treatment for rheumatoid nodules? 8% said steroid injections into the nodules. 9% said surgical removal. 33% said none exists. That's really my answer. And half of you said disease control. Well, the bad news is disease control doesn't work. Um, there's a lot of evidence that says that disease control is not necessarily the way to go, meaning 
most people get really bad nodulosis in the face of totally controlled disease. And so what else is out there? There's some anecdotal small study data saying that um, in injection of the nodules, perinodular injection with steroids can decrease nodule size but not necessarily um, make the nodules go away and there's always the potential they come back. The same can be said for surgical removal. Um, the problem with surgical removal and nodule injections, high rates of infection, high rates of breakdown, um, they're kind of risky.